This morning we're going to be looking at questions 6, 7, and 8. Uh, this is the third lesson in the Catechism. Um, and we're going to be addressing, um, of course we're in this first major uh, segment of the Catechism which deals with man in his sin and misery or man in his guilt, which is actually going to be our, our, our focus for today is man and his guilt. Um, let me read the questions first, and then we'll read the Scripture. We'll do it that way uh, so that uh, kind of lay a foundation that way. Question number six, did God create people so wicked and perverse? I guess I should back up and say, uh, if you will remember last week, um, the outline of the catechism is guilt, grace, gratitude. The first segment, the first large segment deals with the guilt of man, man's sin and misery. Um, last week we saw how the law specifically shows us our sin and misery. It shows us our guilt before God. And what law uh, we, we addressed, it was the substance really of the whole law, the law of love, the royal law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which summarizes what the two tables of the Ten Commandments teach, which we would often say is the summary of the whole moral law. The judicial and ceremonial laws given to the people of Israel were outworkings of the moral law, and so even they really find their root in this great commandment, uh, the first great commandment and the second, which Jesus uh, gives us in Matthew 22. And it is interesting that our culture is constantly telling us that love is the answer. Love is the way. They're correct in this. They just don't understand what love is. And even in evangelicalism, we hear people uh, decry the law and, and emphasize grace or emphasize love, God's love, our love. What is important is that we love God, love our neighbor. They're correct as well. But it is at this very point which man falls so utterly short. And as we see, our Lord opened that up, we see that, that we are guilty before God. We are unable to love God. We are unable to love our neighbor. In fact, in our nature, we're inclined toward hatred. Hatred of God and hatred of our neighbor. So this is where we pick up this morning in number six. Um, did God create people so wicked and perverse? If this is the case, that man is inclined, all men, we are ourselves inclined toward hatred toward God, hatred toward our neighbor, cannot keep the law of God, are not willing to do so, not even able to do so, did God make man that way? And the answer is no. God created them good and in his own image. That is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that they might truly know God, their creator, love him with all their heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Question number seven, then where does this corrupt human nature come from? The answer is from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve. In paradise, this fall has so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners corrupt from conception onward. And question number eight, but what are we so corrupt, but are we, excuse me, so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? And the answer is yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. I have three places that I would like to read in Scripture. The first two are very close. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 26 and 27, and they're going to read the first nine verses of chapter 2, and then we're going to read from John chapter 3 and Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. In Genesis chapter 1, of course, we have the creation of the world. All things that are made were made in the space of six days. Very orderly, God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. He spoke and light uh, shone forth. He spoke and the um, heavenly bodies were created. He spoke and the, the, the waters were separated from the dry land and uh, they were filled with all sorts of creatures, birds and fish and creeping things. But in verse 26, there is a change in the way in which God speaks and the way in which He creates, because now in verse 26, He has come to the crown of His creation. Uh, and He says, Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. I think I said we were going to stop at verse 27, but keep reading. God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested. And on the seventh day, from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put man whom he had formed And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this is the account of the creation, summarized version of the account of the creation. God made the heavens and the earth and all things in the space of six days. And on the sixth day he made man uniquely. Among all of his creatures he made man, for man was made, verse 26, in the image and the likeness of God. The Bible says that God spoke and the ground gave forth all of these, um, these plants and all of these trees. And he spoke and the animals and the livestock came and the birds and the fish filled the heavens and the sea. But it says that he formed man out of the dust of the earth. There was a different degree here of God's involvement because this is a distinct and unique creature among all of his creation. For man, being formed out of the dust of the ground, then had the breath of life breathed into his nostrils by God, and he became a living soul. In John chapter 3, Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him by night, gave him great honor. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one does these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know, and we bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except him who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him 
may have eternal life. Having established the proposition that human nature is depraved and sinful, that it is fully unfit to obey God, we must now ask certain questions. Did God make man this way? In what state did God make man? What does it mean when the Scripture tells us that God made man in His own image? If man was made good and upright with a true righteousness and holiness, if he was made with the ability to know God, to love God, and to live with God, then how did he find himself and how did he end up in the condition that he's in now? How did we become so fallen and to pray that we're unable to do any good, that we're unable to love our neighbor or to love God? What, um, what is the remedy for this? How long will man be in such a state? These are just questions that we, we should consider. The first thing that I want to consider is the original state of creation. When man was created in the garden in Genesis, we're told that he was made in the image of God. Now this is a it's a very interesting passage for a number of reasons. Um, this is the first time when we see the, the plural language, of course, mentioned of God, let us make man in our image. And some would say, well, who, who is he speaking with here? Is he speaking with the angels? Is he speaking with um, other created beings? No, no, it wouldn't make any sense at all. This is intertrinitarian conversation. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every living creature that creeps on the earth. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? One of the things that gives human life, or I should say the thing which gives human life the value that it has is because human life is life after the image of God. I was um, kind of doing an experiment this last week. We were trying to buy baby food, baby formula, and, you, you know, it's just terrible to find that stuff these days. And we've been going on now for um, a year or so, I think, that this shortage, uh, so-called, of baby formula has been existing uh, in the midst of this time frame, of course, it had been leaked that the Supreme Court was going to rule on Roe versus Wade just prior to this shortage happening. And in the midst of this shortage, uh, the, uh, the infamous case was overturned. And I remember hearing and seeing some uh, liberal-minded people saying things about, well, now see what you've done, see how well you're going to feed them. You, you wanted these babies to be born and now they're going to be starving, as though it were humanitarian to, to kill them rather than to, to bring them into a world where we cannot feed them. It's impossible to supply food for all these children, and so it's kind of used as leverage, or it was at one time. Well, this whole baby formula phenomenon uh, was better for a while, and now it seems to be much worse, you know, and so we make this regular loop of about eight stores trying to find formula, and when we find it, we just try to load up on it. But it occurred to me that through this whole time frame, I've never heard anyone complain about a shortage of the particular dog food that they feed to their animals, their pets. It doesn't matter if it's Purina or Imes or Sam's Choice or Old Roy or whatever kind of dog food that is there. Um, Blue Buffalo, I think, is one that you see in the pet stores. Um, I've never heard anyone complain that they're unable to find proper food for their pets. And so we were out making our loop, going from store to store, seeing signs and shortages and rations on baby food. And so I went over to the baby formula section and I took a picture of all of the empty spaces and the signs and so forth. And then I went to the dog food aisle. The baby formula section is about the size of maybe... Maybe those two tables. It's just one, one side, just a small area with several cans, and mostly it is empty. 
And I went to the dog food aisle, and the aisle was as long as this entire room, and there were shelves on both sides, and they were packed to the gills. Some bags of dog food, I noticed, were, were $50 for a bag of dog food. And of course, the Bible tells us the righteous man cares for the life of his beast. We shouldn't uh, intend uh, evil toward animals. We ought to be compassionate toward our beast and care for them to our ability and so forth. But have animals stopped having puppies and kittens in the past year? Why is it that we're able to manufacture all the dog food that we can sell, but not food for our children? Our culture has flipped its values about human life and animal life. And why is it that as much as we love animals, we kill them and we eat them for food and we fill our freezers with them? Why is that? It's because there's a different quality of life in the life of an animal and the life of a man. Because man uniquely is made in the image of God. The West was really uh, influenced by uh, the Christian church, largely after following the Reformation and the dawn of the New World. Many of our laws were established, not as a Christian nation, but they were established on certain principles that were drawn from biblical teaching about the value of human life. Vody will, for instance, use this illustration about how we have sidewalks everywhere in our society. Why? It's because the society is built upon this principle that human life is valuable. And so we make sidewalks for people to walk on, where in most countries in the world, where people actually do walk everywhere they go, there are no sidewalks, and they get hit and run over and things of that sort. And so when the Christian church influences a society, the society sees that human life is more valued. But nevertheless, I don't mean to digress too far here. The point I'm making is that man's value, man's the worth of his life is that he is made in the image of God. The reason that Christians are pro-life, even though that word has been wildly uh, overused, but the reason that we are pro-life is because we value human life as life made in the image of God. We value uh, children, we're anti-abortion. We value the elderly, we're anti-euthanasia. Uh, we value the um, orphan. Uh, that's the reason, contrary to all uh, sorts of propaganda, Christians are the largest category and block of people who uh, work with foster systems and adoption agencies. And the only reason more Christians don't do that is because they don't always have the funds and the resources that are necessary to, to uh, I mean, you, you can have an abortion for, what, 1500 bucks, and uh, uh, an adoption may cost 50000 So, I mean, the, the, the spin on this is, is crazy, but why is it that we value human life? It's because we understand this principle. Now, man created in the image of God, what that means is that there were certain qualities that man was created with that was unique. As I said, God breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living creature. Uh, chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis. But what does it actually mean to be made in the image of God? Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes it's a little difficult to uh, define. I've heard people who shouldn't be talking about such things speculate about what it means to be made in the image of God, and they come up with all sorts of bizarre ideas. God is spirit. Man is composite. We have a body and soul. We are made up of, of both uh, the, man is not a soul trapped in a body. Man is not a body that was given a soul. Man is both soul and body. He is a living creature. One creature, but he's made up of two parts. God is not like us in this way. When we think about the attributes of God, we describe God by what he's not like. He's not like me. I'm changeable. He's not. I'm finite. He's not. Um, and so we, we, we try to describe God in that way. So what does it mean then to be made in his image? Well, the catechism here defines being made in the image of God um, in this way. Pull this up. This thing keeps going off on me. 
um, being made, being created, he created, God created them good and in his own image. That is, here's the explanation, here's the definition that we're receiving. To be made in the image of God is to be made in true righteousness and holiness so that they might truly know God, their creator, love him with all their heart, live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. To be made in the image of God, according to the catechism, was that God made man in true righteousness and holiness, that he might truly know his God, love him with all his heart, and live with him in eternal happiness. Well, that's not the condition that man is in today. That cannot be said of man today, that we are creatures of true holiness and righteousness. But this was the state in which God made man. This probably, to make this a little clearer, when we speak of being made in the image of God, we can speak of it generally, and we can speak of it in a particular way. The catechism focuses on the particular elements of it. In one sense, it's appropriate to say man, fallen man, still in the image of God. James, I think it was, uh, I believe I put that verse in here somewhere. James chapter 3, verse 9, uh, says that it's improper that with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father and with the tongue we curse men who are made in the likeness of God, in the image of God. So the Bible still uses this language of the image of God, the likeness of God, to describe man, fallen man, but it also speaks about being renewed or recreated in the image of God, in, in, a, in a true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And that verse is actually where the catechism draws this description. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, and I don't know if I'm making this any clearer or not, but we'll hopefully get this cleared up before we move forward. The confession reads that after God made all other creatures who created humanity, he made them male and female with a rational and immortal soul, thereby making them suited to that life lived unto God for which they were created. They were made in the image of God, being endowed with knowledge and righteousness and true holiness. Again, here we're seeing the same phraseology. They had the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it. Even so, they could still transgress the law because they were left to liberty of their own will, which is subject to change. When we speak of the image of God, we should probably distinguish between the wider sense, that general sense, and the narrow sense, or the particular sense, that we see in Scripture. On the, the wider sense... We are, we are speaking of man, therefore, as a moral, righteous, self-conscious being made in the image of God. God has put the law in his heart. Genesis chapter 1, we see that dominion is part of that. So he has the law written in the heart. He's been given dominion over creation. He's moral, he's rational, and he's conscious. He's made in the image of God. He's unique. Now, on the other hand, there's a particular way in which we are true image bearers, and that is what we see Paul refer to as being made into the new creation after true righteousness and holiness. And this is the sense that the catechism is actually referring to, uh, being um, true, true righteousness, true holiness, rightly understanding the Creator, being able to love Him, to praise Him, and to live with Him forever. The problem is, is that in some measure, man has lost this. In some measure, this image-bearing quality that man has is, is marred by the fall. And so, even though we still, we still are image-bearers, we're not very good image-bearers. Might be a better way to put it. So, we, we, we bear God's image, but we don't bear it properly. And so, even though God created man good, and righteous, and holy, able to love God, to know God, to praise God, man has fallen from that original state. And this is why we are unable to keep the law. Because what is the law? The law is, 
the law of love, right? It's summarized in love. Man was made with the ability to love God. Man was made with the ability to love his neighbor. He was made with true righteousness and holiness. He was able to live with God, love God, serve God happily forever. Had he continued in that state, but he didn't. So, how did God make man? God made him right, upright, made him good, created him in his image, but man fell. Where does the corrupt nature come from? Where, where has this fallenness come from? Well, obviously it's coming from our first parents, Adam and Eve. When God made man, put him in the garden, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15 we see that God put man in the garden and he instructed man to work and to keep the garden. And he made a covenant with man. This is covenantal language here in this section. It was a covenant sometimes referred to as a covenant of life or a covenant of works. If man were to perpetually obey God, then he was promised life. But if he disobeys God, if he, if he breaks the laws and the commands of God, then he is promised death. Now, the language, the word covenant is not used in this passage, but the, the covenantal language is used, and it's referred to in other places. But here we have God making this arrangement with man, Adam as the head of the race, that sin brings death and obedience, life. Adam violated this covenant with God, and he brought on man and on the creation a curse. Here as the crown of God's creation, he is fallen. He is a rebel against God. The ground is cursed for his sake. Because of him, thorns and thistles will be produced. Man will be forced to eat from, uh, and plow the ground by the sweat of his brow. He will no longer be able to joyously tend and keep the garden. Work will now have toil in it. Childbirth will now have pain and agony in it these things were part of the creation before the fall but now they are cursed now there is a curse that is connected with them and adam's sin not only affected adam but it affected all of the human race paul talks about this in the fifth chapter of romans i cannot think about the whole idea of the fallenness of man without thinking about romans 5 um you guys may remember this, may not remember this. doesn't really matter, I don't suppose, whether you do or not. But some years back, um, a significant number of years back, there was this statement that was produced in the Southern Baptist Convention by a Southern Baptist pastor because at the time, the belief was that Calvinism was going to split the convention. You had the Calvinists and you had the traditionalists, as they called themselves, the conservatives. I think Brother David called them Johnny-come-lately traditionalists. But um, the traditions weren't very old, that is. But anyway, this view was that Calvinism was going to split the convention. And so this man named, um, well, I won't, I won't mention his name, but this man wrote this statement called um, the Traditionalist Statement. And when it first came out, I remember looking through the thing and, and literally uh, I don't remember exactly the way it was worded, but it, it literally just held up Pelagian views about man, saying that man doesn't actually become a sinner until he actually commits sin. So the sinfulness of man results from the actual sins committed, as though every man is falling on his own. Now, this particular man did not intend what he was saying and when confronted with it, he kind of backtracked and, and, and altered his wording a little bit. But nevertheless, this was a view that not only he held, but many people actually hold. And, and you will hear these kinds of things, that babies are born in the world, and we have this romantic view that babies are born, and they're, they're innocent, they're pure, they're clean. And the corruption is something that comes from without, the culture, the society, and so if we can educate them right and we can mold them right and we can instruct them right, then we can prevent them from having this infection from the culture. In the last couple of years, the homeschool movement has exploded. 
And, you know, we've always been an advocate of homeschooling. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. But there's a false notion sometimes that people have that if you homeschool your children, you're shielding them from the corruption that is outside and you're protecting the innocence of the child. This is, in fact, not the biblical position at all. The Bible teaches us that when Adam sinned, he brought a curse onto the creation and, he, and his posterity were infected with sin. Sin then is passed on from one generation to the next generation by ordinary generation. That is, through normal means, sin is inherited. In the same way my children bear my image, they look like me, they have some personality traits of mine, they also draw from me this sinful nature. And so the corruption that is in the child, which, you know, I find it funny anybody who actually has children would believe this, but the corruption that is in the child is something that comes up from within. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You don't have to teach a child to throw a fit. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. Those things are natural. They are able to express them when they're first born in the way that they are when they're a toddler or a teenager. But at birth, all of that is inside. And so part of what we do as parents is we instruct and we educate and we evangelize. But one of the things that we do as parents is we are civilizing our children as well. I heard just this last week on uh, Founders uh, program, Graham Gundon, who has, I think, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, he made the comment that we're supposed to civilize our children because they're basically born as barbarians. And when somebody laughed at him, he said, well, my one-year-old just walks around saying bar, 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 bar all the time. And so he really is a barbarian. But it's true. This is part of what we do. We civilize him. Why? Because there is a rebellion that is in man. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where, the law, where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. That word type is very important. Sin entered the world through one man and then spread to all men. Here's the important phrase, because all sinned. Now, in this traditionalist statement, this was used as a proof text to say that men fall when they actually commit sin. But that's not good um, grammar. It's not good exegesis. Literally, what this says in the Greek is because all sinned at that moment. I mean, those words aren't added, but the tensing of it means when Adam sinned, all men sinned in Adam. All men sinned at that moment. He was our father. We were in his loins. He was our representative, our head, when he sinned, we sinned. If our president goes to war, we go to war. When our representative in the covenant with God breaks the covenant, we all fall under that, and therefore we all sin with him. We inherited a sinful nature from him, and sin coming into the world through and death through sin has now spread to all men because all sin. So all men die. This is evidence that all men have sinned, that all men have a sinful nature. Now, even before the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, death was in the world. And the men in Genesis, many of them, sin was not like the sin of Adam, and yet death still reigned. Why? Because they were under sin. Adam was a type, a representative, a figure. Uh, he was the first, as it were, son of God, Christ being the second, the better Adam, a true son of God. The anti-type. The free gift is not like the trespass, Paul says, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. In Adam, one sin resulted in many deaths. In Christ, one act resulted in salvation of many lives. The free gift is not like that the result of the one man's sin, for judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
So here you have one sin followed by death and condemnation and judgment. But because of Christ, all the many sins are wiped away, canceled out, and therefore we have righteousness and justification. If by one man's trespass death reigned through the one man, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many are made righteous. Just to summarize these points, what we inherit from Adam is sin, condemnation, and death. Man is fallen. He's not fallen because God made him that way. Have you heard people in our society have some kind of terrible vice, terrible sin in their life, and they say, well, I was born this way. This is right, this is good, because this is the way I was born. This is the way the LGB movement has promoted itself, right? I was born this way. God obviously made me like this. Kind of a funny story in the place where my old barber shop used to be, or where, where my barber shop used to, to be located in the old building. There is now a marijuana selling uh, uh, distributor there. I, I don't know what they do. It could be like the oils or whatever, but it's just really a bizarre thing, you know, that you went from um, from one extreme to the other. But but wh what has been used through this whole thing over the last couple of years by people? Well. God made it. It's good. It's natural. It's therefore good. I was born this way. Therefore, it's good. Uh, this is the way we think, but that's not necessarily true. And just because we're born with a particular inclination, that doesn't mean it's good. Because man was made good. He was made righteous and holy in the image of God. But man has fallen from that original state into a state of sin and corruption he inherited from his father, Adam. Therefore, now... The way we are born in the world is by nature children of wrath, alienated from the life of God, hostile toward God's law, inclined in all the faculties of both soul and body toward evil and toward sin. It may very well be that because you were born that way, that's the greatest evidence that it's wrong, rather than the greatest evidence that it's right. born in sin, needing to be redeemed from that sin. Well, enough is said about all of that, what it means to be made in the image of God and how man fell into the state of corruption. The thing that I want to close with is what we read in John chapter 3 when Jesus was addressing this issue with Nicodemus. The catechism asks us, are we so corrupt and totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil. Is, is, is it that we're so sinful? Is man so fallen? So we saw man in his original state. We saw man now fallen. But does that mean that we're so fallen that we're unable to do any good? You know, large sections of the professing church love to give God glory. But they want to hold a little glory for themselves. And I'll talk more about this later. But if what we've said is true, that man, having fallen, is now poisoned in his entirety of his nature, that his will and affections have been poisoned, his desires have been poisoned, his nature has been poisoned, both body and soul, he's a sinner. Dead, lost, blind, alienated from the life of God. If that is true, does that mean that man can do nothing good? A hundred years ago, nearly, roughly, the, the world was, was about to face the Second World War. And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was, let me think, in the 20s he was, he was in Wales, but if you read some of those early sermons by Lloyd-Jones all the way up through the Second World War, 
One of the things that had really dominated the professing church was a social gospel. The view was that man was basically good and that we just need to educate man. And so there were all sorts of societies. There were fellowships and brotherhoods. There were plays and events. The churches would largely have things happening consistently there. In the society at large, the belief was that the problem with man is his ignorance, and so he needs to be educated. The problem is that man needs to be instructed and taught. It's not that he's basically evil. But I remember reading one point, Lloyd-Jones said, after the war, that argument should never be said again. It should forever silence the reality that if you give man the right option, he will make right choices. It's just not true. Biblically, the truth is that we are so fallen that when given the option to love God or to hate God, we willfully and heartily choose to hate Him. That's, that's what man loves to do. When given the option to love his neighbor or to hate his neighbor, he willfully chooses to hate him. Now, most people wouldn't say that they hate their neighbor, and most people wouldn't say that they hate God. Most people would protest that, in fact. Every man declares to you his own goodness. Every man will tell you that he doesn't hate God, that he loves God, that he loves his neighbor, that he's a good person, that he does right, that he intends to do right, that he makes mistakes because he's human, but ultimately he wants to do good. His intentions are right, but this is self-deceit. No, the Bible teaches us that man is so corrupt and so lost and so fallen that even the most religious, a man like Nicodemus, ruler in Israel, perhaps one of the most respected men in the entire nation, in one of the most fastidious and religious nations in the world, will never see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. In regeneration, something happens. It's, 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 it's a very interesting thing that God made man in his image upright, true righteousness, holiness, able to know God, love God, praise God, serve God, live with God. But man fell from that. But in the new birth, there is a sense in which now God is recreating man after the true image of God. The New Testament uses such language when it speaks of our new life in Christ. For instance, um, well, let me just, instead of doing this from memory, messing it up. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. We read in verses 23 and 24. Uh, beginning in verse 22, Put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Notice verse 23, And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here, speaking to the Christian, he says, put off the former manner of life and put on the new life, being renewed in the spirit of your minds after the likeness and the image of God in true righteousness and in holiness. In Colossians chapter 3, very similarly, verse 10. Uh, verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. You see that? Present tense, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Um, and so you see this language being used about being renewed. But even more clearly in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians 5, the apostle says, if any man is in Christ... He is a new creation. In the creation, man was made after the image of God. But man who is in Christ, who has been born again, is now a new creation. He has been renewed in the image of God. He has been remade, recreated in the image of God. When we studied the 
the history of the world, uh, when we did our eschatology study, you'll remember talking about, uh, you may remember, that I, I, I made a comparison between the creation and mankind. The, the created order has suffered the effects of the fall. The coming of Christ is called in one place the regeneration. It's the new birth. It's not as though the old creation is obliterated, destroyed, wiped away, and an entirely new creation is made. But rather it is a recreation of the old. It is a purging and a cleansing and a renewal, as it were. Well, in the same sense, man, when he is given his new body, there is this there is this continuity between the old and the new, like a grain of a seed planted in the ground, it dies, and out of that very grain comes this new stalk. And so here we were, fallen, corrupt. When we were born again, we were recreated. And the language there in Second Corinthians about the new birth and re- the new creation, and that in Revelation chapter 21, I think, very similar language. All things are made new, the old has passed away. Man is so fallen that unless God causes him to be born again, there's no hope. All this does is it just tells us that if we recognize and understand the state in which man was created and then we recognize and understand the fall, how far man has fallen, it will help us to see better how important and necessary the new birth is. This is why no politics, no education, no principles, no instruction, no training, no discipline, no correction, no penal system can truly reform man. We may educate men and just make educated devils. But man has to be changed. He has to be changed from the inside out. Uh, his fallenness affects all of his, uh, all of his body and soul. His whole nature is fallen. Nicodemus of course, I, you may know this. I, 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 I really don't believe he's... I've heard this described through the years. They say Nicodemus is talking in physical categories and Jesus is talking in spiritual categories and so Nicodemus doesn't understand him. I think he does understand what he's being told to an extent because this is the way Jews would speak. They spoke with these kind of uh, word pictures. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, it was shattering to him. It's not that he didn't understand what Jesus meant. He didn't understand how it could be possible. Nicodemus goes to Jesus in the night. He recognizes that this man is sent from God. He has to be sent from God because of what he's doing. This is not flattery. He doesn't come to him in the day to test him. He goes to him at night when nobody will see. Nobody can do these signs unless God is with you. He wants to know what he needs to add, how he can find more favor with God. He wants affirmation of his life. The, the ruler of Israel, the teacher of Israel, goes to this little rabbi at night in order to find validation. And Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, everything you've lived your life for, all of your religion, all of your self-sacrifice, all of your righteousness, all of your training, everything is but rubbish. It'll do you no good. It's not going to get you near the kingdom. It's not going to get you in the kingdom. You're not going to see the kingdom unless you die to yourself and are reborn of God. The whole thing has to be lumped to the side, thrown in the, in the garbage, and it has to all be made new. Nicodemus is horrified, shocked, destroyed, Because everything that he's hoped in, everything that he's took comfort from, he's now told means nothing, nothing. You're never going to see the kingdom unless you're born from above. And Nicodemus, when he says, how could this be? How can a man, when he's old, enter a second time into his mother's womb? All he's saying is, "How how can I start all over? I mean, how can this all, it's impossible. What you're saying is impossible. You're saying I have to abandon everything I've believed and hoped in, all that I've put my faith in, and I have to be born of God. 
That's impossible. You're asking something that's not possible to accomplish. I cannot do that. My reputation is on the line. Everything is on the line. What you're saying is illogical. It is impossible. And Jesus said, don't marvel. What's born of flesh is flesh. What's born of spirit is spirit. Moses lifted this serpent up in the wilderness and told the people who were plagued by being bitten by these fiery serpents to look to that serpent and live. It could have been that those same people would have looked at Moses and said, that's impossible. That's foolish. It doesn't make sense. But it was, in fact, a look of faith. And the good news is that God has sent His Son into the world. He's given us His gospel. And the promise is that whoever would believe in Christ could be born again, be made into true righteousness and holiness, and have eternal life. Man, because he has fallen, is not evidence that God created him evil. God is unstained by our evil, by our sin. He created man good. Man fell of his own volition, of his own will, of his own rebellion toward God. And he fell in such a state that his condition is irreparable. There's nothing he can do to remedy it. There's nothing he can do to improve himself, to reform himself. He must be born again. This is what we see Jesus referring to being washed by the Spirit with regeneration, being made new, being cleansed, being born from above. And of course, this is the promise of the gospel. All this says to us is that the gospel is absolutely essential. Our job in the world is going to be completely a failure unless God comes and moves. We're utterly and absolutely dependent upon Him. And man must be born from above. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would give us understanding and wisdom in these matters. Thank you for these great truths. We pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen.